0: Welcome to Embargo, the podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I'm here, as always, with my friend, colleague, and co-host, Mr. Timothy O'Toole. What is up, Tim?
1: What is up, Brian? Lots of Russia, Iran, and other
0: topics today we're hitting three of our favorites today we're hitting russia cuba and iran um no china but three of our favorites um today so it's going to be i think a pretty succinct episode by our standards we say that all the time and we usually fail to stick to that concise today we're gonna keep it keep it swift, keep to the it point. concise. Yeah, we're gonna try. Um, thank you everybody for joining us for a, what is a, a landmark episode of Embargo, episode 50. We have um, uh, we have the champagne on ice to uh, to uncork after the episode, and um, Tim's gonna use his champagne saber on the on the bubbling. <sighs> to um to let that to let that loose after but no thank you to everybody uh for joining us as always we appreciate from uh hearing from everybody the past few weeks um we are a little off our normal schedule in part because it's uh now sort of summer travel um business travel all kinds of other um, things that are sort of pulling on our time at the moment, but, um, this is our mid-June episode. We're recording on June 15. This will be up, uh, sometime probably first half of next week. Um, and so, you know, a few pretty significant things to check in on here, as I said, in our favorite and a few of our favorite countries for various reasons. So, um, I'll, I'll go ahead and get us started with the normal, um, The normal caveat which is we're not giving legal advice no confidential information is being discussed or disclosed uh any and all opinions you hear on the program are mine and tim's if you don't like them blame us um if you like embargo please subscribe you can get us anywhere you get your pod content please give us a rating hopefully a five-star rating spread the word uh we're here every two weeks or somewhere thereabouts in the summertime so um without further um Pump and circumstance for our 50th episode uh here's what we're going to cover today we're going to do start with a russia roundup um because it has been a few weeks there's a couple of interesting developments on the ofac side a couple on the bis doj side we're going to talk about a few odds and ends um so that that'll be kind of the the bulk of the early early portion of the show we're then going to go to the recent amendment to um the cuba regs which just came out last week um Announced in May, but just um, just came out um, in the Federal Register last week, um, and it's a little bit of a turning back the clock to the the Obama era with some of the some of the changes that have now been uh, implemented in, in the amended amended Cuba regs. So we'll talk about that a little bit, and then finally, no lightning round today. Although this this topic might qualify, we might um, take some bets on. Um, our again one of our favorite all-time topics jcpoa 2.0 is it dead um when is it going to be dead how do we know if it's dead if it's not dead what comes next um because things are looking pretty dire these days with respect to the talks um the indirect talks with the iranians to resuscitate the deal um so we will close with that so that's it we're going to do three topics three big topics but three topics um and that'll be the show for today uh so before we jump in any thoughts or words of wisdom or, ref- or reflections, Mr. O'Toole, on our on the occasion of our 50th episode, as as we were just revisiting some of our early episodes um, when they were done in person pre-pandemic. That's how long we've been doing this now, so that's quite an achievement in some ways yeah 50 who knew i mean it's a lot of talk about
1: sanctions um a lot of talk about china a lot of talk about russia but i think it's still topical and we're going to be brief today and concise and to the point
0: we're going to do that uh we have again the big champagne drenched celebration um can only wait so long so we're gonna we're gonna try to be brisk uh so with that, let's jump right in. So, topic number one, like I said, Russia roundup. So, we'll do this in a couple of, in kind of a couple of tranches. Let's start with some of the recent, um, recent developments and recent announcements from our friends at OFAC. So, I'll start here, which because this is the, this is the freshest. This just came out yesterday. Um, which is the issuance of a new general license 8C now with respect to transactions related to energy. And for those who've been tracking this, obviously there was a predecessor general license that was in place that allowed for transactions related to energy um, through June 24. So it was set to expire and there was some question whether that was going to be extended or not. Um, And it was targeted and designed with the some of the largest russian banks that are now subject to blocking sanctions in mind and also the the central bank of russia um and obviously meant to free up and facilitate and allow for payment uh for transactions again related to energy defined term under the general license and in in the faqs um in us dollars and connected to the u.s and and for u.s financial institutions to be able to partake in such transactions and now that this has been extended renewed through december december 5 of this year is now the new date which not coincidentally is the date um upon which the eu is set to impose its ban on imports of russian oil into uh europe um and so it seems that this is coordinated with that in mind. Not surprisingly, um, so let me stop there and just let me throw it to you, Tim. I know you have you have thoughts on this, and this is one that we've both gotten a lot of questions about. Um, I I have a few other sort of notes and thoughts based on some of the comments and guidance that came out around this. But what are your what are your thoughts upon seeing um, the issuance of GLHC? So I was a little surprised. I, I
1: actually expected the the tightening on the energy sector to start you know, right around now, (laughs) like right around June 24, right around this was going to be the run up to it. So I expected a little bit more tightening. Um, I will say that I think that the The U.S. policy on this has it's in a little bit of tension because on the one hand, you have GL8, which is a very broad GL. I mean, it doesn't have any restrictions on what you can do in connection with the energy industry, and it allows for transactions with sanctioned banks. So it's pretty broad in terms of the carve out for the energy industry. But then, you know, back in, I believe it was March, the president issued an executive order that prohibited new investment in the energy industry which is also a very broad prohibition on energy related investments that that are new and you know we can talk in probably in a few minutes about what that actually means. But when you look at these two together, um, there's some tension because on the one hand, GL8 and now you know expanded GL8 seems to suggest energy-related transactions are really carved out from the sanctions through December. But on the other hand, you've got this new investment prohibition that takes a lot of that back.
0: Yeah, I would say that um, we are going to get to the new investment um, prohibitions in a moment because not only obviously is there was there EO14068, which explicitly prohibited new investment in the energy sector, but then there was the subsequent EO14071 that broadly prohibited new investment in in the Russian Federation by US persons. Um, So we're gonna get to that because OFAC has issued some new guidance on what what new investments are and are not in their eyes. So we're gonna get to that in a minute. I would say to to that point, there there is an FAQ that was issued in connection with GLHC that basically says, the new investment prohibition still stands, so don't right. don't be mistaken. This is not this is not a you know sort of a this does not override or overcome that. So don't don't be mistaken. The import ban with respect to Russian crude and other Russian energy products still stands. So don't don't be mistaken. This does not sort of override that. It really is meant. I think it's what is clear is it really is meant to. Keep the markets and the financial sector from grinding to a halt when it comes to payment for anything, you know, again, related to energy, Um, because as we know, so many of those transactions are denominated in U.S. dollars and do rely on U.S. correspondent banking um, relationships to to make them work. And so that is that is, it seems clearly the uh, intent here And, and in syncing this up now with the end of year um you know uh, onset of the eu ban on russian energy imports it does seem that the judgment was made that it would it's best to um align there and to not sort of have this train wreck of a situation for 5 months where us dollar payments are going to be unauthorized for anything related to um energy but europe is trying to wind down and and is just it's just going to make that impossible if not extraordinarily difficult if if we're not sort of allowing for that so i do i do think at the end of the day that's probably what it is it's it's kind of as you said it is in tension with the the desire the clear desire on the u.s and the u.s side to tighten the screws with respect to the revenue that russia is generating Off of the energy sector, but I I think it's probably seen as a necessary evil to align with the European timeline and to allow for this to to play out. So, you know, that's kind of my my two cents. I do think that. um, Just two other notes that I have on this related to the FAQs that were issued. Number one, there is a there is an acknowledgement that if the December 5th date um, holds and there is not going to be a renewal of that or an extension of this kind of, you know, uh, related to energy payment carve out, let's call it. Um, OFAC expects that they will allow for an issue, a a true wind down license at that point, if there would be a need to do so. So they've signaled that clearly. I think we would expect that. But they've been very clear that that is the intent. Um, So that would presumably extend at least into the early part of 2020 three, if that is the case, if that timeline holds. The second thing that they said, which I thought was, and I kind of laughed when I saw this and I shouldn't have, but I did. And those who live this um, day in, day out, like Tim and I do, will know why there's basically an FAQ. It's 1011 that says my bank has refused to process a transaction related to energy, despite the general license. What do I do? And it's basically like engage with your bank and call OFAC if that's the case. And it's just like, you know, I, I, you know, I I don't even know what to say to that. But I mean, that's true to a point, but it's just like the most unhelpful attempt to be helpful that I've possibly ever seen when it comes to an FAQ. And, you know. That is the reality as everybody knows that I I don't know how many times I've told people, well, yes, you should be able to do this. It should be authorized by this, this, and this. Make sure you talk to your bank because they may look at it and be like, we don't care. We're not going to, we're not going to, we're not going to process this transaction anyway. So we're sorry, you know, take your business elsewhere. Yeah. It's Um, about
1: Russia. So good luck. um, Is often the bank's response, but, but yeah, I mean, that is amusing. I thought you were going to say that they wrote an FAQ that said have a, "have a nice day," but um, <laughs> but apparently not. Our friends apparently, at OFAC always very polite. They are always, always being very polite, Every, the, the, very
0: very and very professional, as anybody who's ever communicated with them knows.
1: OFAC and manners
0: are go go hand in hand. Synonymous. In yes, in synonymous.
1: But but I I think um, it, it is amusing that there that 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 was in an FAQ that you know what do you do if your bank doesn't doesn't allow for this, um, even though it's authorized by GLA, which is a very common situation. I mean, I had a, I had a question that I put up in front of OFAC about the oil import ban and the kind of the wind down provisions that expired in April. And I put the question to them in, I think mid March. And I got a response like last week in June (laughs) after, after the, the wind down license had expired. And the question was about this April wind down (laughs) license that that told me, Oh, we're just getting to your question now, go seek a special license. So it's like, It's like the idea that, oh you know, just call OFAC and it'll all be fine or right. work it out with your bank is is
0: yeah. no, not a helpful yeah. uh, form of it, guidance. As I mean, the, the true nugget here is that, you know, to the extent that this is not already part and parcel of how you try to handle these things anyway, communicating with the parties and the counterparties that are involved directly in your transaction is always sort of the best order of business, obviously, to try to sort out what people are and are not willing to do and what they do and do not believe is authorized, or unauthorized and within their own risk tolerance. I do think there is some good lesson to be taken from that, but the idea that um <laughs> you have to throw your hands up and, and sort of say, Oh well, yeah, well, I guess I guess let's just, you know, there's a call to be OVAC done and they'll yeah. sort it out. Yeah. That, That'll work. Yeah. So anyway, I, I think that's, you know, on the new on the GLHC, I think that's about all I had for now. Just to pivot to the other kind of big point that came up in the middle of, of this discussion, which is the new investment prohibition. So um there was new guidance that was issued just again, I think this is I believe it was beginning of last week, June sixth, which is some new FAQs on the scope of the new investment prohibitions. And and we had Talked about this previously, and OFAC had signaled that there was new guidance that would be forthcoming. Because obviously, at the time the ban uh, went into uh, effect, at the time the, um, in particular, 14071 was issued, there was really, really no guidance on on what the scope of this meant. There is now quite a bit of guidance i would say um sort of on the flip side of of the faq we were just talking about um on the scope of the new investment ban what is covered what is not i'm going to run through just a couple of highlights here really quickly and then um i'm not going to try to get to everything obviously but a few things that jumped out to me and I'll, i'll flip it to tim so um you know in terms of i think one of the most common questions that we've gotten certainly is what about kind of day-to-day operational activities, funding your subsidiaries and affiliates that are already in Russia and are already operating in Russia. Is this covered by the new investment ban, is it not? There had obviously been some informal guidance that was out there to try to explain what was covered and what was not. There's now an FAQ on this, which is 1052, um, which makes it pretty clear that, you know, funding your subsidiaries and affiliates um, in connection with pre-existing projects, is fine. That's permissible. That's authorized. Would not run afoul of the new investment ban. Um, of course, there's the caveats are as long as it's not sort of new and expanded projects. Um, and that is a that is going to be a, a common refrain throughout all of the guidance. That as long as it's not new or expanded products projects, and as long as it's not um, let's say um, commercial sort of uh, you know typical commercial payments that are uh, you know, that are actually dressing up some sort of um, investment stake or, you know, a royalty stream or something else that's sort of a disguised new investment. As long as you're not doing those things with regard to ongoing operations, then you should be fine. I think most of that's kind of a big picture takeaway from the the guidance that's now been issued. Um, Similarly, so that was 1052 about sort of um, funding subsidiaries and affiliates. Um, 1051, is it okay to provide good services and technology um, into Russia? Again, same answer: yes, as long as it's sort of ordinary commercial sales terms, not a dressed-up new investment that's kind of disguised as something else. I think is kind of the key takeaway there. But I would sort of encourage everybody to look at that. Um, and then, you know, very helpfully, there's two um, two FAQs at the very um, that go to the real heart of the matter. One is, you know, what is kind of acceptable, kind of covered. You know maintenance activities that would fall outside the scope of new investment. That's 1050, um, and that it says explicitly new investment excludes the following. And then there's a number of examples that are articulated there, which I think is is very helpful. And I've already, you know, had that discussion with a number of clients who, you know, in the run up to this guidance, we've said, you know, I, I, you know, it seems. Our interpretation is based on past practice, based on what we've heard from OFAC, it seems that this would be excluded, but now I think it's a little easier to be able to compare um, the list of items to what is carved out, what's excluded, and help, help people make judgment calls about that. And then 1049, which is explicitly what is new investment, and boom, boom, boom. And then by negative implication, what is not new investment, some of the things that are already covered elsewhere in 1050 and 1051 in terms of services and goods and technology and maintenance activities are sort of covered there. Um, So those are sort of the big ones for me. Um, I think those kind of go to the core, the the heart of the matter. So let me throw it over to you. But but I thought overall, uh, you know, fairly helpful. And for anybody who hasn't focused on this yet or hasn't sort of really dug into what is contained in these FAQs, um, who, you know, who's been wrestling with this or who is wrestling with this on a sort of ongoing basis would certainly encourage you to do that um, because I, I do think that there's, um, you know, some helpful um, examples given and, you know, some inferences that can be taken away from from what's now put in these FAQs.
1: Yeah, I, I thought the guidance was overall both pretty good and and really directed at what really are frequently asked questions. So, so these are the questions that we've been seeing, and these were the questions that we've now got, you know, in, relatively definitive answers to from OFAC I thought the the answers actually came out where I would have expected them to come out as well there was nothing kind of really aggressive or surprising about them they interpreted these words basically the way that we thought that they would be interpreted the the thing that jumped out at me I guess a couple of things that jumped out at me really related to the divestment guidance so so you know new investment is not divestment well that's easy and but they they were a little right I mean but but it but it in the particulars, it gets harder because yeah. you know, as as we know, like when you are trying to divest, there are certain things that you might have to expend. Like, for example, if you're a U.S. company and you have a sub and you're trying to divest of the sub, you've probably got all of this investment in the computer infrastructure, the IT infrastructure that you don't want to transfer over. On the other hand, um, it's hard to sell a company, to divest yourself of a company that has no IT infrastructure. So what if you buy new IT infrastructure and install it so that it won't be compatible with your companies, but it's so that the buyer actually is getting something that actually has IT services? Is that new investment? I think the answer now is pretty clearly no, but again, not
0: not to mention though, that that is also carrying with it some in-country transfer <laughs> completely if you've got EAR EAR subject to the ear if, yeah, exactly.
1: and it's it's so, complicated it gets more complicated mess, at yeah. the margins but i think yeah. that this that this guidance kind of gave you the the OFAC perspective which is divestment is what we want yeah um the thing that was the other thing that was interesting to me about it is that uh, well from the u.s side that's divestment it's also new investment in russia now if it's new investment by the buyer is making a new investment in russia is if you are and so they made very clear in that guidance that if you're selling you can do a lot if you're if the the buyer Better not have any U.S. nexus because the buyer, if it has a U.S. nexus, is likely engaging in new investment in Russia. And so I that's, thought that that dichotomy was yeah. was pretty was pretty interesting and in and making clear that U.S. persons couldn't have any real involvement with the buyer. So like if from a, from a transactional perspective, if you're working on this transaction to sell, you can represent a seller from the U.S. But you, as a U.S. person, would have a much more difficult time either as a lawyer or as some sort of professional. Working on the transaction, representing the buyer in the, tra- the same transaction, and I thought that that was kind of interesting that they went down to that sort of granular level in the guidance um, in talking about kind of the line between new investment and divestment.
0: Yeah, one one sort of similar one that also jumped out to me that I'll just mention here at the outset was, which is I know another one that you've gotten question, you and I have both gotten questions on is, ten fifty five, which was talking about whether or not the new investment prohibitions reach um lending of funds purchasing equity interest to entities located outside of Russia outside the Russian Federation yeah and the short answer is no with some caveats and then there's some the guidance that talks about whether the funds are intended for new projects or operations in Russia so whether this is kind of an end run around the direct right. investment ban or whether um they are um the revenues of the entity located outside Russia are not predominantly derived from investments in Russia. So, and obviously on that second point in particular, you know, that might be a hard thing to know if there are, if there are Russian individuals or entities that are sort of part of the structure that you might be dealing with in, you know, in a third country. So I know that's one that's come, that's been coming up and and this, also kind of bears on the divestment piece right because you sort of it's possible that there could be things that are being done in the name of divestment that relate to these types of activities that are done in third countries but you sort of also have to be mindful of these considerations as well and whether or not they're sort of you're you're coming full circle to run afoul of it for a different reason almost so it gets it does get complicated but i think the, the idea that there's no blanket prohibition on doing things like that and that it needs to be these kind of Considerations have to be addressed or thought through um, in, in conducting transactions with parties that are outside of Russia is uh, I think is, is helpful generally. So um, okay. Absolutely. With that, let me, pu- let me pivot now to the second piece of our Russia conversation, which is um, which is more BIS and and DOJ focused actually. So a couple of other things that have, have gone um, have happened since our last recording. So One I'll mention quickly and then one I want to talk about a little bit more in depth, which is um, there was a big, you know, another big, massive addition to the entity list that happened at the beginning of June. 71 new um, entities, uh, additions to the entity list that came on June 2nd, and those are Russia and Belarus focused. and so you know that and i think i saw at the time i don't remember if this is in the press release or somewhere else that there's been over 300 new additions to the entity list so um since the beginning of the invasion of ukraine so you know bis and the erc have been quite busy in that regard and um you know i think we're going to we're going to con- you know continue to see a steady drumbeat of those big tranches of additions that are happening on a fairly regular basis as long as this drags on so so that was just one one thing to flag but the the one that's maybe a little more interesting that i wanted to talk about was the um the seizure warrant that was issued for two aircraft that are owned by roman abramovich Um, and that was just issued this was just i think last week that this came down and it was doj that went to um went to court in SDNY to get the seizure warrant and for anybody who hasn't seen this and it got a quite a bit of news coverage there was two aircraft that are owned alleged to be owned by Roman Abramovich who is the former owner of the Chelsea football club in the English Premier League for sports fans out there and otherwise um you know one of the more well-known Russian so-called oligarchs that have been out out there and have now been Um, targeted by the various sanctions regimes. Um, In this case, Abramovich is still not, he's not a block person, he's not an SDN, so that was not the basis for the seizure warrant. The basis was that with the new export control rules that have gone into effect that BIS put in place in um, March that essentially made, Just about all controlled US items subject to the AAR or subject to licensing requirements with respect to Russia. That the two aircraft that he owns, one a Gulfstream, one a Boeing 787, um, violated the export, um, the AAR, um, because they flew they were known to have flown to russia after the ban was after the new rules were put into place and they flew into russia without a a license so that would be an unauthorized re-export of those aircraft to russia um without authorization by bs and also given the way they changed the um the license exception rules the one plausible license exception that could have been um, claimed for that, was uh, taken off the table for um, items that are um, owned by Russian nationals. So he couldn't claim the AVS exception. So it was, it's deemed by the U.S. to be an illegal re-export of these aircraft to Russia. One of them is still in Russia. One of them is now purportedly in Dubai. Um, and so they went and got a seizure warrant for these two aircraft, you know, combined value of 400 million dollars between the two aircraft and i think it's just an interesting so this is and this was uh by the um you know the press release that was issued by doj at the time it's sort of the klepto capture task force that was sort of part of this or behind this um and obviously it's again it's another example and we've talked about some of these with the um various vessels and and aircraft and other things that have been out there in the news um you know uh doj bis OFAC are working very closely together on on these efforts, clearly, um, and I do think it's just an interesting. It is just kind of an interesting new wrinkle or an interesting new dimension to the the enforcement tool that kind of BIS wields. That obviously DOJ is the ones going to court to get the to get the seizure warrant, but ultimately it's about this is about an export violation at the end of the day, um, because these aircraft are both nine eight nine nine one exported re-exported without a license to Russia. And and I just, you know, it's it's a very kind of flashy, high profile example of kind of what I think we're going to see a lot more of here in the coming months to the extent that there are still parties out there that are trying to, you know, fly these aircraft to Russia or that there is evidence that is produced that they were flown into Russia after the effective date of these new export controls, which it seems was the case here that this was shortly after the new rules went into effect in March that's what the allegation in the warrant is that the, the the aircraft were flown in and then back out or flown in shortly after without a license. And that's what the, prompted the um, the basis for the, the seizure warrant. So, um, again, just kind of an interesting trend and an interesting kind of snapshot, I think, of the enforcement approach that is happening here. And so I'll just throw it to you to to maybe react to that.
1: Yeah. Well, it's very aggressive. I mean, it's, it's a, first of all, it, it, they've been using this approach with respect to aircraft since the new, new licensing restrictions went into place shortly after the invasion. And, and I guess the, the, you know, the the legal premise is that general prohibition 10 makes it improper to take action with respect to an item after, you know, that it's been in, involved in an export controls violation. And so the, the hook is that this, plane was involved in an export controls violation and as a result not only can nobody deal with it but it is subject to seizure. I I will say that most of the seizure laws require that the item be either the proceeds of crime or involved in committed commission of a crime. Um, To the extent that this was a licensing violation with respect to the fact that AVS no longer applies to an airplane, I think it would be tough to show that this plane was involved in the commission of a crime at some point. I mean, it might've been involved in a technical violation of the regs, but if every, improperly licensed export or import of an airplane was subject made the airplane subject to seizure i think that would be a big change in the laws. so so i'd be curious to see how this plays if it's ever contested but i but i i will say that it is it is it is, appears to be kind of not just in this instance with respect to these planes but a, a, in respect with respect to enforcement writ large this is a new tactic that we've seen at the beginning of the, the invasion of ukraine that they are using more and more and it's in my view aggressive not pr- particularly precedented and, and may you know if it if challenged have some issues
0: yeah i think that's a really good point which is you know obviously the general prohibition 10 issue is is out there and has been bis as in particular has been i i know very very vocal and uh, very public about sort of pushing that and making parties who might cross paths with aircraft and vessels and other things that could um subject them to general prohibition 10 um, exposure that people are aware of that here i do think your point is a really good one about whether or not they have the goods to show that this was a willful violation of the of the laws given that it was close on the heels to the change, and close on the heels of the change to the and the tightening and closing of the license exception. Um, you know, if push came to shove and this were ever to be litigated, whether or not Abramovich's lawyers would be able to credibly claim that this was a um, you know, an inadvertent violation of the of the new regs, um, you know, sort of right after right in the immediate aftermath of their of their passage and their implementation. So I, I do think that is a really interesting question. And, you know, whether that is whether we're ever going to be able to see a court case on that or not, I don't know. But that would that would be fascinating. And I agree with you that that would be um, a really interesting question. Um, Basis to challenge this, that this is not, in fact, a willful violation because of the, you know, the the novelty of the um, the sort of sweeping nature, the novelty of the approach and and perhaps, you know, the plausibility that it wasn't entirely clear at that point that that was what was um, the state of play.
1: Well, and I think most, you know, lay people are not thinking of an airplane flight as an export it is but it you don't necessarily think of it like that and then one that normally would require a license but for the existence of abs which had carved out russia very recently i mean you have to know all that to know that this was a violation and so to the extent that you get into willfulness maybe they've got the goods maybe somebody you know told abramovich specifically before they took off or told you know somebody in connection with the plane if you fly this into russia you'll be violating u.s law at which point if they flew it into russia the willfulness case becomes easier to make
0: right and we don't know that and that's not clear right. from the for from the seizure warrant so that's speculation at this point but i do think that that's a really good a really good um you know Open question, perhaps, and and if this does play out in a way where there's a challenge to this. And by the way, again, one of these planes is in the UAE and one is in Russia right now. So nobody is nobody's going to get their hands on these planes anytime soon. Um, And if it does ever come to a court challenge um, uh, in terms of the legal sufficiency of the seizure warrant, then I think that will be a fascinating um, that will be a fascinating question. There could, of course, also be a follow on criminal case that is brought in connection with this um that would be charging abramovich himself or others in connection with uh you know these via- these underlying violations that are um that are the basis for the seizure warrant so you know that i that i think we'll have to just wait and see and and if that were the case then i would expect that all of that is going to be have to be acknowledged and addressed in that in the charging documents at least um at least on its you know to on its face, but we'll, we'll have to see. I think that's a question for another day. So, um, anything else on Russia before we move on? Um, I think that kind of covers a couple of the, a few of the big items from the last few weeks, but, um, if nothing further, then why don't we go to Cuba? Let's go to Cuba.
1: Um, so what, you know, at, at the end of the Obama administration, President Obama loosened many of the, um, kind of more restrictive travel regulations related to Cuba and at least some of the regulations related to sending of remittances to family members in Cuba. Uh, One of the things that President Trump that it ran on in 2016 was that he was going to crack down on these um, you know these changes that the Obama administration had made and during the course of his administration President Trump did do that crack down on a number of the general licenses that had allowed for travel to Cuba uh, by US persons and made it much easier to travel to, to Cuba not all of them and so many of the many of the travel changes remained in place but I think some of the ones at the margins that were were pushed back related to both family remittances there were it was a $1000 cap that was placed per quarter that was placed on family remittances and then with respect to travel i think the most the, the most notable exception that the obama administration created was one for people to people travel that is that although congress has outlawed travel to cuba for tourism the president is authorized to Grant licenses or general licenses that that create exceptions to that. And so so one of the exceptions had been that allowed if you were going to Cuba and you were going to see people, then you could go under the people to people travel exception. It was a little bit more difficult than that, but but that one one read of it was that 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 was really all you had to show to take advantage of that general license. And so that was why it was relatively controversial the new regs i think the most important part of the the changes that the biden administration made last week when they they kind of reinstated some of the Obama changes was that they revived at least one part of the people-to-people travel um, general license exception. Now, there were two parts. There was one that required that where you could go with a group for people-to-people travel. So it was educational travel where you're going to be interacting with the Cuban people. But to take advantage of that license exception, you actually had to have a group that was supervised by somebody that was subject to U.S. jurisdiction so that there could be an enforcement mechanism, but also so that they could essentially be responsible for making sure that you had a full time schedule of activities, and it wasn't just kind of an excuse for a trip to the beach where you, you, you waved a Cuban. You had people.
0: a chaperone. You effectively right. had a chaperone. Yep. Yeah, and and so the bi, so the, the the there were
1: two the the two part there was an individual people to people travel part under the Obama administration that really had you know it was pure kind of scouts honor type um type. Exception that you could say, as long as you could check the box and say you were going to Cuba to meet with people and not to be a tourist, and that you would spend the whole time with a full-time schedule of activities meeting with people, you would be able to fall within that exception. And so that there was some suggestion that that was not what was really going on, that that was kind of the tourist exception, and that one hasn't been reinstated. It's just the it's just the chaperone um, exception for people to people travel and 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 some changes in the remittances and some loosening at the margins with respect to to Cuba travel policy generally. So we're still not back into kind of the full-fledged Obama era where it looked like the embargo was really starting to melt away. We're we're more kind of somewhere in between the Trump rollback and the uh, um and and the Biden reinstatement.
0: Yeah, I think um I don't have too much more to add other than to say um yeah, I think the people to people exception, as Tim alluded to, was one that kind of, you know, got a lot of sideways glances and chuckles because people sort of understood that to be kind of a almost a de facto tourism exception, even though it was not styled as such and was, in fact, you know, just. Disclaim to be exactly that, and and they've and they're sticking to that clearly. I think in the if anybody wants to understand sort of what the new changes to the regs really are, I would encourage anybody to dig up um, FAQ 1056, which is sort of a nice. There are statements by the State Department and OFAC and others about sort of what what has happened and support for the Cuban people, and clearly that is the underlying message here is that we're intending to hopefully show our support for the Cuban people. We spoke, I think it was. I can't even remember when this was last year when there was sort of the crackdown on the pro-democracy protesters in Cuba and some other things and sort of what the regime was doing and, and, you know, prospects for any sort of return to maybe, you know, Obama era Cuba policy at OFAC or otherwise. And, um, you know, I think that it's just been largely, it's been largely quiet, honestly, in the, you know, 18 months or so that Biden has been in office. But, um I do think that these are, you know, symbolically and and not so symbolically, you know, the remittance lifting the remittance cap obviously is a a pretty significant thing for people who um, have family there and have other, um, you know, good justifications for wanting to remit funds to persons that are not, you know, sort of the core policy reasons that the Cuba embargo exists. Um, And so, but the, the people to people travel, as Tim said, group only still. Um, not individual and and there's a not for tourism is sort of part of the faq like it is it is right there so the you know tim and i have both had the misfortune of seeing some declarations that have been made by persons or aware of some statements that have been made directly that say yeah i'm going to cuba for tourism and then you're sort of like how did this ever how did how did nobody catch this it's sort of it's it's one of these very um you know, these things that people still don't quite understand uh, despite all of the, all the changes. But if you look at FAQ 1056, they sort of break down very neatly. Here's what the new amendments did. And one category that Tim didn't touch on is professional meetings and conferences in Cuba. So that's one other area where, um, you know, some of the, the general license has now been kind of resuscitated to allow for, you know, subject to certain conditions, travel related to in attending or organizing meetings and conferences in cuba um people to a- people academic activities um and then the remittances it's really those three areas so yep. at the end of the, at the end of the day not um you know not the most sort of sweeping changes but but you know fairly significant noteworthy i think it sort of caught it certainly caught our eye when it when it popped up um and when the The statements were made in May from some senior uh, spokespeople and officials in the administration that this was coming. And then when the regs were actually amended um, last week, you know, I do think it's it's significant and, you know, could foretell that there's more coming. But for now, it's sort of a, you know, I wouldn't call it significant, but at least a somewhat important, at least incremental change back toward perhaps what the, again, Obama era kind of policies were.
1: Yeah, but with a very different spin. I mean, in the Obama, at the end of the
0: Obama administration,
1: these regulations were clearly seen as kind of the last gasp of
0: Vestige. the Cuban. Yeah. yeah,
1: it looked like the Cuban sanctions were going away. That seemed to be the trend. And they were kind of announced as such, and you'd go to conferences, and OFIC would I mean, I, I actually heard, the, and I I should say maybe they weren't from OFAC, but I heard somebody from the government at a conference in 2015-2016 say something like, "If you can't figure out a reason that you can get to Cuba, then you're not, try, not trying hard enough." I mean, that was really the that was really the the attitude back in, in in that time frame. I think this is much more restrained. I mean, I think this is is being pitched as a like we're loosening things at the margins, but it's still not okay to go to Cuba for for tourism, and we right. really mean it this time. And, oh, by the way, like, we're not going to open up some of the, the regs that were kind of the most um, lenient in terms of allowing the transactions with Cuba or the Cuban people.
0: Right. And again, I think that it's all couched in the idea of this very sort of pro-democracy, pro-Cuban people yep. um, rhetoric, which is not, you know, not right. really all that surprising, considering that that has been kind of the, you know, the linchpin of the, um, you know, the kind of policy stance of this administration from the beginning. So so anyway, I, we did want to highlight that because I think that is worth keeping an eye on. But as Tim said, I don't know that we expect a lot of big movement or actions on this front, in part because I think anything more significant would be politically unpalatable at this point and probably not something that the president would want to take a hit on, which I think leads us neatly to our final topic, which is Iran and JCPOA 2.0. So the reason this is back on our agenda for this week uh, is that for those who haven't been following this in the most in the last 2 weeks or so there's been a lot of chatter and some action that has come out of the um, the US and European members of the P5 plus 1 who were the part of the original Iran nuclear deal um, relating to uh iran's efforts to prevent the iaea inspectors from being able to get into various sites and and then somewhat dramatically the announcement that iran was going to dismantle or take down the cameras that were at various sites for monitoring purposes that was kind of a you know a a key element of the deal on the front end that these cameras were going to be there and were kind of a you know the eyes and ears and a fail safe so that the iranians couldn't skirt their obligations in terms of what they were doing at these various sites. Well, the Iranians have now done that. They've announced that they're doing that. They're taking down the cameras. They're sort of going to prevent any kind of ongoing monitoring for the moment. They've been sort of rebuked, at least lightly, at the UN. Um, You know, there's a lot of rhetoric flying back and forth. At the end of the day, I think this kind of boils down to a couple couple of things. One is, you know, we thought... It seemed months ago that maybe the stalemate had been broken and there was about to be a deal. Honestly, I think Russia invading Ukraine kind of took the wind out of everybody's sails and that sort of has distracted the group that would be responsible for this from really focusing on that to some degree. That's at least one reason. I'm not saying it's the only reason, but that's one reason. Um, And then, you know, the talks. To date, have all been indirect, as we've talked about before. There's, the Iranians won't sit down with the U.S. or vice versa, so it's all going through the Europeans and the Chinese and the Russians, and you know that's just not a very effective way to negotiate something as complicated as what, what's contemplated here, which is to you know revive this deal or to have a you know version 2.0 of this deal. The other thing seems to be at least to hear it you know this seems to be the received wisdom at this point based on all the reporting and some of the comments that have been made is that the fact that the RGC was made a foreign terrorist organization and the US refuses to budge on removing that label is is a sticking point and that the Iranians are insistent that that has to happen and that the US says no way we're not going to remove that and whether You know, I mean, I think the the, the sort of sad reality is that as a practical matter, for the U.S. to do that, to remove that label, would not really make any difference whatsoever. The IRGC is going to remain blocked. Um, They are going to remain subject to sanctions. Um, But symbolically and politically in the U.S., it would be seen as a massive sign of weakness by the Biden administration, which is already perceived as being too weak on these issues by many And I think would just is probably a a political L that they cannot bear to take at this point. And so I don't think that that is really a realistic option to have that happen. And the Iranians claim at least that that is, you know, sort of a deal breaker for them and that they're not going to be willing to get back into the deal um, unless that happens. And of course, in the meantime, they are days, if not weeks away from being able to have a breakout timeline that would really be troubling based on their enrichment activities that have been going on for the past, you know, couple of years since they effectively ceased complying with the deal when the US dropped out. So that's kind of where we find ourselves now. I I think I'm done pronouncing this dead because I, I somebody made a good point in one of the one of the commenters or articles I read which is there really is no plan B. Plan B is I suppose that the US says we're walking away from the indirect talks and we're going to maximum pressure 2.0. That is I guess plan B. Um I don't really know what plan B is. And unfortunately, we're in this position the US is in this position where this is kind of you know lingered and sputtered and on and off and seems like we're close but we're not close and and who has leverage to actually get this done and really nobody does maybe until there's a true crisis point that we reach which you know we're not there yet it seems so i don't i don't know i'm i'm sort of done declaring this dead even though i think i was on record as saying you know 10% or less likelihood that we ever get a deal done but i don't think that maximum pressure 2.0 is really palatable for this administration either and also, th- there's the good point, which is the bandwidth that is being sucked up by the Russian-Ukraine situation. I don't know that there's the bandwidth in the, in the U.S. administration to deal with another, you know, true crisis at this point. Uh, you know, so I, don't, I think they would rather kind of keep things backburnered and status quo-ish and just sort of hope that there might be, you know, an alignment of circumstances that allows some deal to get done at some point in the next six months next year i don't know but um yeah i don't know so in any event we had to we felt like we had to talk about this because it has been getting a lot of attention recently but let me throw it to you tim what are your kind of thoughts on where things stand and what could potentially break the stalemate at this point
1: so i was ready to throw in the towel and declare game over um but the fact that you won't do it means that I can't do it either. I mean, so well, we
0: have to be we have to be you have to, you know, let's be let's be counter. Let's for conflict purposes. Let's you be the naysayer and I'll be the,
1: the well, I mean, know,
0: I, grudging optimist, I guess I wouldn't even. It's that's not... really hard. So 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 I, I hear you on the there is no alternate
1: strategy like there's no viable alternate strategy. First of all, first off, there's no bandwidth to really impose maximum pressure on Iran and and to do that you really need international consensus and and you know the biden administration has i think written the playbook on international consensus with respect to russia but there's no way they're going to get to it with respect to iran and and even trying could threaten the consensus with respect to russia and then beyond that you know the the president uh is i think like many americans concerned about oil prices do you want to um do you want to impose maximum pressure on you know one of the biggest potential oil suppliers in the world who is by all accounts supplying oil outside the us right now quite a bit you want to crack impose maximum pressure so that you essentially take iranian oil more off the market now than it than it has been previously so you drive the supply of oil down just as prices are like five dollars a gallon for gas they're not going to do that that's that's that was part of the reason that I thought that there was a chance for a deal is that because of the the Russian crisis, Iranian oil is looking a little bit more tempting, as is Venezuelan oil, and which is why we're hearing rumors of a of a deal in Venezuela. I mean, still not there yet, but potentially getting there. So I always thought I was optimistic about the chances for this, but but now that now that um, Iran is so close to a nuclear weapon, uh, the 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 incentives for the US to get back into the deal are a lot less. I mean, it, it was all about keeping Iran from getting a nuclear weapon and that was working, which was why I think it was a disastrous idea to drop out. But now that that Iran is most of the way there, it's not clear to me you're going to get the benefits of the deal from the US side and from the Iranian side. like there's the the benefits are really difficult to understand i mean unless the u.s goes back to maximum pressure they're at a point where they're able to sell some of their products without fear of secondary sanctions right now and meaningful fear going forward and if if, let's say the u.s gets back in and we sign a jcpoa 2.0 in in six months so let's say you know january 1st 2023 um, what happens when President Trump's second term begins in, Janu- in January of uh, 2025? Like two years later, you've got somebody coming into office, that deal is dead. So the Iranians at best get two years unless. President Biden is reelected. And if you go to the the, the betting markets, um, the chances are not very good of President Biden being reelected. I mean, if you just kind of put your finger up to the wind, the chances aren't that good of President Biden being re- reelected. And President Trump is the presumptive favorite to be president again in 2025. And so why would the Iranians enter a deal that it has a two-year shelf life if everything works out perfectly when the re- status quo isn't hurting them that badly? Like, I just don't, I don't see it anymore. But, you know... Now that I've finally thrown in the towel, I'm sure that that's right when JCPOA two point two point zero will get signed. Yeah, I
0: mean, I, again, we have no answers. We're just we're we're just wildly speculating here. But I, you know, in some ways, it's just it's worth it's worth remembering that for many years, this really was the top priority of the U.S. from a you know from a sanctions policy perspective and endgame and You know, it's now been it's in this sort of odd stasis period where it's sort of not it's not sort of fully functioning as intended, but it's not sort of fully collapsed yet. And and so I I agree, I agree that um, the incentives in terms of aligned incentives, it just doesn't it seems that every day that goes by, we're just farther and farther apart from that being the case and how how those things get reconciled. In the you know, quickly enough to justify doing this when the significant risk exists that whether it's President Trump 2.0 or any non-Biden person, any non-Joe Biden in the in the White House um, on the Republican side, I think it's the same outcome, right? So whatever it may be, um, I think we're in the same place, and so there's a you know a not insignificant chance that that is the reality Mm -hmm. in 2025, and and I just don't know how anyone could get comfortable that, that there's going to be enough certainty around any of this um, going forward or that there's really much to be gained from it at this point. So I agree. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of reasons why perhaps now it, it won't happen um, despite sort of what sort of looked there for a while, like a lot of uh, alignment of interests, but both sides
1: really wanted it. I mean, I'm still convinced of that, but they, each kind of out-negotiated the other, and so it's not going to happen.
0: It seems that it seems that way for now. Although again, something could happen to sort of upend the apple cart, and who knows? And and a lot of the you know experts sort of think that the camera removal thing is just sort of a lot of high-profile posturing by the Iranians to, cr- to try to kind of create a crisis, create leverage, etc., which you know makes a lot of sense if you think about it, big picture-wise. But at the same time to Tim's point, they are by all accounts, not that far from having enough enriched material to create a bomb. And so, you know, I don't know every day or every week that goes by where that gets closer and closer to reality. I just don't know. I don't know that there's going to be a lot of incentive to get back into a deal that resembles the old, the old deal. And if there was going to be something, it would have to be sort of a start from scratch kind of thing, but I don't don't really understand how that's going to happen in the near term. I think the moment has passed. It may have. It may have. Um, and with that, let us wrap. And our moment has passed for this week, for today. Fiftieth um, moment. Yes, our fiftieth episode. We thank you all for joining us. Um, it has been a. It has been. If you, if anybody is curious and wants to go back to the very first things we were talking about back in early 2020, it is. As I said at the beginning to Tim and our producer Matt, it feels like seven lifetimes ago that we were we were getting started in doing this. Um, Maybe it's just that I've aged in dog years during the pandemic and with all the craziness that's gone on the last few years, but, um, but yeah, it has been, it has been a wild ride on the, the uh, in the trade nerd world and on the sanctions and export controls front. So um, we thank everybody who's, uh, who's been around with us for summer, summer, all, or any part of it. Um, And uh, again, we'll be, be back in a couple of weeks um, with, with the next 50 starting on the next 50 so thanks everybody uh stay well and stay sanctions free thanks for listening everybody stay sanctions free all right bye this podcast was produced by heartcast media